I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 20 of the Talking Golf History podcast. On today's show, we're going to take a dive into the shallow end of history. It's a history many of our listeners have lived through. Today on the podcast, we will be joined by author Kevin Robbins, and we will dive headfirst into his new book, that literally hit the bookstores today, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, The Year Golf Changed Forever. Kevin Robbins, much like the subject of this book, was born in the Show Me State of Missouri. As the decades have passed, he has served as a reporter for newspapers in Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Tennessee, and Texas. Kevin has been published in the New York Times, ESPNW.com, Sports on Earth, Golf.com, GolfDigest.com, the USGA.org, Kansas City Magazine, and Travel and Leisure Golf. He has won, on two occasions, the Associated Press Sports Editing National Writing Competition. He is currently serving as the Associate Professor at the University of Texas Austin School of Journalism and Associated Director for the Student Engagement of the Moody College of Communication, Center Sports, Communication, and Media. Finally, Kevin was co-winner of the USGA's Herbert Warren Wynn International Book Award in 2017, which in my mind is like winning the Heisman in college football. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the 20th show of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Well, thank you. It's really good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I read the book, absolutely loved it. I think before we jump in, how does this even come about? I mean, it... I, I don't know if it's coincidence or not. We're coming up upon the 20th anniversary of Payne's death. Um, did that have anything to do with it? Or was that just merely circumstance? It was really circumstance. But when um, <clears throat> when we realized, and when I say we, I guess I mean me and my publisher, that we could time it to the anniversary, uh, we sort of hastened the 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 process it ended up taking me a little over two years. Um, maybe I, 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 in a, in a perfect world, I wish I would have had longer, but, um, as I look back on it now, I don't know what additionally I could have done. So, um, I'm actually quite pleased that we're hitting the anniversary. I, I think it's perfect. I mean, I, now help me out here. Uh, we're, I believe it's October 8th today. <laughs> I should know that off the top of my head. Your, book, your book's out today, years. correct? It is. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's first day. Very first day. So it people, when you're listening, you can go to... Where, let's just start right here. Where can they find your book? What's the easiest way to get your book? I think literally wherever books are sold as of today. Until today, I think you could only pre-order it on Amazon and maybe barnesandnoble.com, but uh, it's it's on bookshelves today. Fantastic. That's great news. All right. Well, let's just jump in. Sure. Um, 
Well, you know this. Uh, I'm sure most of our, our listeners know this, but Payne Stewart was one of the most complex personalities, perhaps in PGA Tour history. He's, he was at times a prototypical jock slash fraternity brother, and other times a thoughtful, caring individual of charity and grace. He was at both times unbearably cocky, and other times gracious and humble. He was at times selfish in his charity, and at other times completely self-obsessed. Kevin, is that why we find him so interesting? I mean, is that one of the takes you take away from this book? Oh, yes. Um, and, and that description, it really checked all the boxes. Um, he, he, was, he was complex. He was unpredictable. Uh, he was ever-growing. Um, he was mercurial. You often didn't know what you would get until 1999 when he was predictable and a more cautious, maybe even as psychologists say, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Self-actualized. Sure. I think who he was in 1999. And I think until 99, he was constantly in search uh, of who he was. So, yeah, I think that, you know, people are ever changing. People are always moving in a, in a direction. They're either getting better or they're getting worse. And I think for a long time, pain was not getting better. And then in 98 and certainly in 99, he was. So that, make, that, yeah, that makes him relatable. It makes him real. I was a sports writer for 20 years uh, before I started teaching at UT Austin. And... <clears throat> I, I liked writing sports not so much to write about what's happening on the field or the, the court or the golf course, but um, about the people who are competing. Because I think we forget that as audiences, we forget that athletes are not gods and they're not right. robots and they're not right. machines. They're actual people. They're they're more than one dimensional. And pain was that. Yeah, I think that's what makes your story so fascinating to me. It's It is completely human. It's not a story... Uh, like many biographies, autobiographies that have followed through the years where we have the hero of the story who seemingly seemingly goes without flaw. This right. is a deeply flawed story. I mean, not the story in your writing, obviously, but a de- <laughs> <laughs> sorry, folks, you heard it here. No, um, it's a deeply flawed character who is basically on this journey to better himself. Right? I would agree. Yeah, late late in life he was. I'm not sure he was on a journey to better himself as a young man. I, I don't know. I mean, let's let's confront the 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 biggest truth of, of our conversation is the man who has all the answers isn't with us anymore. Right. So, um, but his 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 friends, his peers, the people who knew him best, uh, dating all the way back to. His uh, his up, upbringing in Springfield. I spoke a lot with his two sisters, who still live there, and very sweet people, very kind and generous with their time. And and his friends on the SMU golf team, who were I, I got to mention before I forget, Lamar Haynes, who lives in Dallas. Uh, Lamar and I were Facebook friends just through the Texas golf community, and uh, Lamar played golf with with Payne and remained his friend for Payne's entire life. And, and Lamar was. Um, just incredibly helpful, not in terms of just his own time, but opening doors to talk to other people. But anyway, through all of these people, Connor, um, I, I, I grew to know pain pretty, uh, very well. Yeah. I, 
I, I just I am really excited for what we're going to talk about here today. I, I just think it's a, a fascinating character study in you know a man progressing through life until unfortunately it ended so soon. Well, before we get into that, let's just jump into how most people recognize Payne Stewart. Um, it might be completely artificial, but I I don't think we can talk about Payne Stewart without talking about the way he dressed and how he set himself apart. Um, you can't remember him without that bold flair. Tell our listeners how he, he came about his signature look, because it's an interesting story to me. It is. And, and, and I also want to say that, that that was his costume. That was his, that was his uniform. That was his, his cape. Um, when he didn't have that on, he was, he was not a recognizable person. He could, he could walk through an airport or even play around a golf uh, well, maybe not play around a golf because everybody knew that swing, but uh, he could move through life in, in anonymity. Uh, but when he put on the plus fours and the Argyle hose and the gold tip shoes and the flat cap, he was Payne Stewart, celebrity, celebrity golfer. So uh, his father, this all begins with his dad. His father, Bill Stewart, was a, a very fine amateur player in Springfield. They played out of a club called Hickory Hills. And he was a mattress salesman, Payne's dad was. <clears throat> and he told his son when Payne was just, just a kid, he said, if you want to be remembered, you've got to have a look. And Bill Stewart wore these incredibly bold and sometimes contrasting colors. And he would wear loud sports jackets on sales calls because he believed that all of the other salesmen of mattresses dressed the same and he wanted to stand out and he thought standing out could make a sale. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that happened, but Payne Stewart wanted to be remembered and he wanted to stand out. And so, uh, I don't remember Connor. I think it was a, it was at a tournament in Atlanta when he first wore the plus fours and he got notice and he was remembered for that look. Yeah. Um, and so it became, it became his look. Yeah. And it wasn't popular across the board, was it with other players and commentators? You never know what people actually thought privately. Um, I'm sure he was poked fun at for, uh, wearing these kind of vintage looking, I mean, he looked like a modern Bobby Jones. Right. But at the same time, he had done nothing yet. I mean, that's, I think that. For some, I, I have a, actually a quote from Mark Lyle, um, who actually it's not a quote, it's more of what he said, but um, who in, uh, in no uncertain terms essentially called him a whore for selling out to wear what he thought um, ridiculous clothes. Now, to be fair, I believe he was wearing uh, the Tampa Bay um, Buccaneers uh, uniform colors, which back then were quite ridiculous in that orange and whatever it was. So I kind of get that. But I mean... I, I think some of the, the pushback was, hey, this guy hasn't even won a major and right. he's dressing like he's won 15. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. He uh, he there, there was the impression that he he didn't have anything to back up the look. Um, but I think Payne, you know, Payne believed that uh, that he would win. And he did. I mean, I suppose he got the last laugh. It, Absolutely. But but you're right. When he started when he started sporting this look. He was just another, you know, two or three time winner on the PGA Tour who had never won a major, and uh, and and that future to other people was questionable. 
Yeah, that always strikes me as bold, right? I, mean, I love that about him. Is like, listen, I am who I am. I might be brash. I might be in your face. This is my look. I'm sticking with it. And and I love that analogy of of essentially putting on the cape and you know going to work. He was he was he would he would metaphorically duck duck into the to the telephone booth and right. and emerge with um with this look with these with this with this costume on. Um, and let me just say something. Now, this is conjecture, but um, I don't know if the look and the the walk and just the presence that he exuded was really an expression of confidence or if it was an expression of doubt, of insecurity, of, of compensation. Um, again, I, this is something that's that's quite impossible to put put a finger on. Because we're not here. He, the, the man we need to interview about this isn't with us. But um, but I wonder, you know, I, I, I don't know that he was a, a secure and confident young man uh, rather than an insecure, compensating uh, uh, young player trying to sort out tour life and his place in it. Yeah, kind of the fake it till you make it thing, right? <laughs> Could be. Yeah. I, I I mean, I would not see that as a being a bad analysis of what might have been. And again, the one person that might know is the person we really can't ask about, which is part of the unfortunate part of the story. For sure. Well, let's talk about a little bit more about perception. So I have a question for you that's, uh, I think it's very answerable, but it's going to be a little bit of conjecture. Um, if I told fellow PGA Tour players in the late 1980s, that Payne Stewart would have an award named after him, presented on an annual basis by the PGA Tour for character, charity, and sportsmanship, what do you think their reaction would have been? Oh, my gosh, what a good question, man. And that's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, I think there's an indelible irony to that. Payne Stewart in the 1980s and even the early and mid 1990s was not someone known for his sportsmanship. Um, Character is quite a different thing and it's more personal. Absolutely. I, w- I want to state here for eternity that in no way do I think Payne Stewart was a bad person. I think he had a good heart. <clears throat> he was impetuous. Um, but in his soul, I think he was a good man. Uh, he just didn't know how to conduct himself in a way that would allow him to be remembered, I think, in the way that he really, truly wanted to be. Yeah, I think immature is a good word for that. Right? Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. There's no malice. I don't think that if you look okay. through everything, everything, I mean, the full scope of things, I don't see malice. I just see youthful, maybe exuberance. That's gone unchecked. Yep, exactly. So I I think we need to keep that in mind. But but, but back to the award. Yeah, so the award does recognize uh, golfers with those three qualities. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that is colored kind of a sepia tone by what happened in 1999. And so Payne Stewart won twice that year, including the famous U.S. Open at Pinehurst. We all know what happened on the 18th green of the 72nd hole with Phil Mickelson. Yeah. That's, that's seared into the collective memory 
of professional golf. And, and many people know about his incredibly gracious concession to Colin Montgomery on single Sunday at Brookline at the Ryder Cup. <clears throat> but I think that, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this book, given 20 years since all of that happened, there's an entire generation of people who care about golf and watch it every Sunday on television who don't know where it all started with pain. So I think really to appreciate what we saw in Payne Stewart in 1999, we really need to know who he was before then because he had come a very long way. Oh, I, I cannot agree more. I think, I, and I think the story's better uh, knowing that I think too many of our stories are, are painted in the clouds. Yes. And hey, geography. What I, what I really like about what you did here is I think it's a very true picture of the man. I, I don't think you, you um, dampened any of the bad moments. And I don't think you over. I don't think you embellished any of the great ones. It's just a great picture of a man who happened well, to win you. three majors, who yes. happened to go through all these transformations. He's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Yeah, um, I, his 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 life and his season in 1999 deserved reappraisal. I think so. You probably know this, Connor, but there were two books written right after his death that were that served as biographies. One of them was was written by an Orlando newspaper columnist. Uh, that particular book felt very opportunistic to me, and uh, the other one was written by his wife, by right. Tracy Stewart, right. the authorized biography. And Larry Guest, who wrote one of the books, I, I think had a, a, a personal relationship with Payne, and certainly Tracy did. So they had a, um, an angle or uh, a purpose in the way that they portrayed Payne Stewart. I never knew Payne Stewart. I never met him. We, we, the only thing we have in common is we're from the same state. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. He's from Springfield. So, and, and I'm a, a trained newspaper reporter, and now I teach journalism in a, uh, in a university. So right. I like to think that I gave it a detached neutral sort of high altitude treatment that those other two books um, didn't give it. Uh, yeah. I, I think you're right. Uh, I've read Tracy's book. I haven't read the other one to be honest with you. Um, but I think, I think the way you, you tell the story takes the reader on an interesting journey. And I mean, to segue into this, I personally love the way you start the book. Um, you know, a lot of books are written and they start off with highs and then the book goes, you know, into the lows of the character development, uh, or a book starts at the very lows and it becomes to the very highs, you know, at the end. You chose the 1998 U.S. Open at Olympic, which was a very tough loss and perhaps a turning point for the man that we remember today. Um, why don't you go into maybe your reasoning for why you started? Kind of, I mean, that's the end of his career. It's not quite the end, but it's near the end of his career, and. How did you decide to go there, and how does that set up the rest of the book for you? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, this the story that I did is is told in five exploded moments, um, and I'm just going to run through them real quick. The the '98 US Open you mentioned. The next one is the '99 uh, AT and T Pro M at Pebble Beach, 
which he won. Then we go to the U.S. Open at Piners, then on to Brookline, and then to the day he died. So I picked I picked '98 in the U.S. Open because it was a glimpse, it was a it was a, a hint at what was to come. When when Payne Stewart arrived at the '98 U.S. Open in San Francisco, he hadn't won a golf tournament in three years, um, and that that particular uh, tournament, the Houston Open was the only tournament he won between the 1991 U.S. Open and when he arrived at, at Olympic. Amazing. So he had been on – he'd been in a dark place, a slump. <clears throat> and no one expected anything of him at the 98 U.S. Open. But he opened with a 66, a flawless four-under round of 66. And he led – and he led after round two and he led after round three and he carried that lead into deep into round four when he didn't have his best stuff. In fact, his, his longtime teacher, Chuck Cook, who's been an acquaintance of mine for a long time, he lives in Austin. He said that Payne's game got a little duller every day. So in other words, he peaked in round one. And he was at, by the time he's in round four, he's just trying to hold on and he's encountering all kinds of bad luck. Um, he's missing fairways that he didn't miss in the first two round, three rounds. There's the famous Sandfield divot on, I think it was number 12. Uh, he got put on the clock by the USGA walking score, um, and walking official. So <clears throat> things are just like crumbling and he it's almost like he has no control of it and he, and he lost, he lost by a shot to Lee Jansen. He had a pain, had a putt on the 18th, on the 72nd hole to, to go to a playoff on Monday and he missed it. And here, but here's the important thing that happened next. The, the, the pain Stewart people thought they knew would have sulked into the post round press conference and he would have blamed the Sandfield divot and he would have blamed the rules official for putting him on the clock. And, you know, he would have blamed a gust of wind or he would have blamed anything but himself. But this Payne Stewart in June of 1998 took full responsibility and, and gave all the credit that was due him to Lee Jansen. And this was a new Payne Stewart. No one had seen this kind of responsibility, this kind of composure, this kind of maturity out of the out of the player they thought they knew. And it was a glimpse of what was to come. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It's it's a foreshad it foreshadows a essentially natural, your ending, right? I just have to make it up, right? This yeah. is a natural foreshadow of the next season. Even when you go through, and, and you discuss this in the book, his press conferences after every round. And it sounded like, you know, the newspaper reporters were almost on eggshells asking yeah. him questions because they yeah. know they remember the pain from years before. Yeah. Yeah. Pain had a quick temper with reporters. And um, I mean, it was the, it's the classic conflict between athlete and journalist. The athlete doesn't truly understand the role of the journalist. And many times the, the journalist feels entitled to uh, feelings, judgments, perceptions from athletes that athletes aren't willing to give. So there's this natural tension that exists, and I lived it, <laughs> between 
reporter and athlete. And that softened in 98. Yeah, I love that. So let's, let's, let's look at something in contrast, right? It's kind of the yin and the yang. So in contrast with the loss at Olympic in 1998 uh, and how he handled it, let's discuss what should have been perhaps his greatest triumph, his first major at Kemper Lakes for the 1989 PGA Championship. What went right and how did it go so horribly wrong for him? Well, what went right at the 89 PGA Championship was the back nine on Sunday. When, when Payne made the turn, he was five behind Mike Reed. He had gained one shot on Mike Reed because I think he began the round six back. Again, no one expected anything. After all, he hadn't proved himself in a major yet. All he had proved so far in majors was that he could lose it on the last day because he'd been in contention in the U.S. Open and the British Open before. Absolutely. So what went right was he shot 31 on the back nine. And uh, a, a sort of a flawless, it was the round he needed, it was the side he needed. And <clears throat> he had to wait for Mike Reed to finish. He had the clubhouse lead, but Reed had to finish. Uh, and Reed, who was, he was 35 years old, this really well-regarded, uh, kind, generous, magnanimous uh, gentleman from Utah who hit the ball as straight as a laser. His, his nickname, in fact, was Radar. Radar Reed. Love it. <laughs> Me too. And, and Radar, like the Radar quit. The Radar broke at Kemper Lakes on the last few holes. And Reed rinsed a tee shot on 16, a par four. He blocked it into the water. Uh, made a great 12-footer for bogey, but lost a shot there. And then on 17, inexplicably, he whiffed, nearly like whiffed a uh, a pitch shot from the greenside uh, rough on the par three. And then he three-putted. So he doubled. He, he coughed up three shots in two holes to back into a clubhouse tie with, I mean, uh, to, to uh, uh, be one, one shot behind Stewart, who was in the clubhouse. Yeah. And then on 18, had a, a makeable birdie putt and missed. Meanwhile, this whole time, Payne Stewart is in front of, in full view of television cameras, uh, just kind of cavorting around. He's, he's almost childlike. He's bouncing around, popping like snacks in his mouth and, and uh, pointing to the, the NFL logos. He, he was wearing NFL colors by that time in an agreement with uh, the NFL. And just like not, it wasn't a very good look. And uh, like, I think what people expect now of a player with a clubhouse lead who's who's in, in a tight tournament that, you know, they should be sort of within themselves, contemplative, maybe out on the green, practicing putts in the case of a playoff. And Payne's just like clowning around. And um, his peers noticed, like, you know, Paul Azinger was on the phone with his dad. Paul wasn't in that, that championship, but he was on the phone with his dad and they were like, is this as bad as it looks? Um, it was just a, a really, and this goes back to the sportsmanship. It was a very unsporting look. Well, Reed lost. And because he was such a popular guy, such a sympathetic and now tragic, uh, figure on the PGA tour, the mood, um, wasn't quite as buoyant as it normally is when a player wins a major. It was, it was rather somber, a little funereal. 
And, um, but pain, meanwhile, was like a high, you know, high strung, you know, a bundle of nerves, uh, all of this pent up anticipation, anticipation and frustration from losing so many majors is now like the cork has popped and he like bounces into the press conference and he's very sort of self-referential and self-absorbed in the things that he says. And it struck a lot of people as very, the tone was inappropriate. The words were inappropriate. And, um, it was just like, it was a, a manifestation of all of Payne's immaturity right there on the stage for everyone to see in, in this, this moment that should have been special, but it turned kind of, uh, regrettable. Yeah. It's, man, I've, I've, I've really spent a lot of time on this part. I probably read this section of your book, uh, more than the other ones. Um, cause it, it let me kind of, I don't know. It left me wondering, like, is, was his reaction or its interpretation his fault or was it our own? Like he was judged over the celebration basically of Mike Reed's faltering down the stretch, you know, and while the optics didn't look good, Stewart was in Reed's shoes in 1986 twice at the masters. And then his downfall at the U S open where he held the lead and, and dropped it in like basically the final holes. Do you think, do you think that this impression was perhaps painted too harshly? I, I think about... Because it followed him, right? I mean, th- I mean, don't you think that this... You know how, you know, first impressions are kind of everything. And I feel like, you know, he, he made some incredible mistakes of his career, but this one seems to be the one that really marked him early so that anything that he said or did after that, they were like, oh yeah, remember when he won his first major at Kemper? Yeah, it was almost, you know what? It was almost an affirmation yeah. of what people thought they believed of him. Guys wearing knickers, like, right? Yeah. yeah. Almost like, of course he's going to act like that. It's, it's Payne Stewart. I mean, I think that's a really good question to think about, but I also think about someone like Bobby Jones who, you know, sure. really, he, he sets the standard for conduct in golf Absolutely. and the way that he viewed winning and losing uh, about the way he viewed conduct and comportment on the golf course. Um, I'm sure you could quibble with that and you could call it a false standard or, a, uh, but, um, given the situation, I don't think the expectation. Oh, for sure. Is, is too severe to, to, uh, to hope that if we were in his shoes, if we were in Payne Stewart's shoes and winning a major, that we would have the, the emotional wherewithal to kind of read the room. Yeah. And- I think for me, Kevin, um, I would probably, <laughs> I would fail that test so badly. So, <laughs> and, and I wonder if this just comes down to part like personality. So I like, and I wonder if this is the truth, you know, for, for pain here too, but I, um, I show my stress way differently than most people. Um, I make a lot of jokes when I'm stressed. So like when I read that, it was like, oh, I was kind of putting myself there. Like, you know, hopefully I'd figure out that there were cameras around me and what that might look like. I think I am uh, introspective like that to figure that out. But I could also see myself being put in a dire situation and making a complete arse of myself joking about it to relieve my own inner tension. 
And yeah, maybe I, so. I think of it in that. I mean, then again, that's just me. But I, I get it. The camera's on you. It looks bad. You take it over into the press, you know, room, and it basically gets worse. Well, and and let's let's not forget that he's thirty two years old. Yeah, and he had been he had been playing on the PGA Tour for seven years at this point. He'd been been a professional basically for the better part of a decade. So it's not like he's a rookie, like True. or somebody who's twenty two years old. Um, uh, you should have known better. I mean, I, I, I'm convinced of that. But but I think there are varying degrees of expectations. And I certainly think, I know for a fact, that people view that and everything that Payne Stewart did that kind of went down in history, they view the, these these scenes differently with different standards. Sure. Well, let's jump forward. I mean, we, we only need to go a year, right? So we go a, a year later at Bay Hill. Mm. Why was that event? Why was that event important, and how did it show us a different side of Payne Stewart? Right. So uh, Payne and, and Tracy uh, were living in Orlando, right on Bay Hill, in in that neighborhood, when he won uh, that that tournament there. Um, and to everyone's surprise, uh, he announced that he was going to donate the entire first place prize money. I think it was $108,000 in 1990 to a charity. And, um, and this again shows like the, the dichotomy of the, the, the complicated, uh, never predictable, uh, quality of Payne Stewart. And, and it showed that he was capable of this exceptional largesse and generosity and selflessness there was a lot of money and I mean, Payne and, and Tracy were, were fine. Um, he was, he was known for winning just enough to keep his card every year. Right. Uh, even though he wasn't running away with tournaments, uh, their standard of living was fine, but still, can you imagine like, so when I think of Payne Stewart, like the modern equivalent, I think of, of a, some sort of hybrid of, of Patrick Reed, of Ricky Fowler, of Ian Poulter, and of Bubba Watson. That's like pretty good. Could, That's pretty good. <laughs> it's the best I can come up with. In any way, uh, can you imagine any of them announcing almost spontaneously after they win a golf tournament, they're, they're going to donate the entire, these days, you know, basically a million dollars. Yeah. Charity. On, on one level, no. But on another, another level, I can sort of see like Bubba Watson just surprising everybody by doing that. I can see Ricky Fowler doing that. Um, so anyway, but it was, it was quite surprising and quite generous and it, it, it helped us serve to change the, per, his, per, the perception of, of who he was. You know, like just to magnify that a little bit more, he only won 11 times on the PGA tour, right? He won three majors. 11 yes. times on the PGA Tour, and one of those 11, you're donating the entire check to a hospital. Um, yeah. I, I have not done the fact-checking on this, but that amazing gesture of charity at that time on the PGA Tour was unprecedented, giving all of the winnings to charity. I think you've got to be right. I mean, We, I, would, we would know if someone else had done that, I think. I mean, the, the percentage of his income for that year would have been double digits. Mm-hmm. There's zero doubt of that. It's double digits right. um, and, of percentage points. I mean, like 
20%, 30%, was something like that. I haven't looked at the numbers, but it was significant from his winnings. And, and Connor, I, want, I just want to be clear. I don't think he did this for the sake of his image. I, I think it was pure. I, um, I don't think he did. It was not manipulative. He, I'm not even sure how well thought out it was. It was sure, but I don't think he was doing this to uh, patch up or mend his public image. I think he did this because because he want he he it felt to him right. Yeah, he won at home, right? And he was won just giving home. back. Yep, I think I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, and that that idea of giving back. It, it seems tired. It seems a cliche. It seems worn out. But um, but there's truth to it. And I think this is a fine example of that. So two years later, we have Payne, Payne wins the Byron Nelson, and then he wins his first U.S. Open at Hazeltine, right? He, yes. He's now a two-time major championship winner. The golf world is his oyster, as they would say, right? Yep. Um, you know, golf is a game of pars and birdies. But all of a sudden it reared its ugly head on Payne Stewart. And many of players prior to Payne Stewart, many players were paid to use equipment. And I know this is only one piece of that puzzle, but he made the switch to Spalding. And maybe I thought maybe you could go through the technological swing from what he was using to what he switched to and how that might have played a role in what followed, which was the dreadful slump. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad to talk with you about this because I know your audience and your audience is, is, uh, is interested in this. So it's, it's the, it's the modern day equivalent of Rory McIlroy. When, when Payne wins the 91 U S open two years after his PGA and it's hubris, he, he thinks he can win with anything. And so he does a little money chasing and he, uh, Spalding dangles this very lucrative contract. It's a ball and club contract and he jumps at it. He wanted, he, he and Tracy are getting ready to build this mansion on pot, on uh, a lake in Orlando. They're moving from Bay Hill and going to live in this spacious house with a tennis court and a basketball court and a boat dock. And he's got to pay for it. So he signs this contract with Spalding. He goes from forged, blade irons to uh, investment cast cavity back irons, basically player improvement clubs for a guy swinger for a guy who has exquisite feel. Um, He goes from a wound balada ball to a solid core ball, three piece ball. And like McElroy, the, the combination of these two new implements is a complete mystery in his hands now. And he could be over an eight iron and not know if it's going to go 145 yards or 175. This, the spin, the, just everything was different. And this was a guy who played and learned golf through his fingertips and his feet. He was 100% a feel player. And now he felt nothing, but he's stubborn too. And he's loyal to his contract. So rather than, you know, ditching the equipment and going back to something he can win with, he just plods along with this equipment that doesn't work for his, for his move. And that 
explains a lot of what happened in the 1990s when he basically disappeared. He went from being the toast of the game in 91 after beating Scott Simpson at Hazeltine to um, the wilderness. Yeah. And he disappeared and he no longer was on the cover of magazines and he no longer was on television and he no longer was uh, requested by reporters who wanted to get the latest on some controversy or issue in golf. It was like he was anonymous. So let me ask you this. So there were a lot of pieces to this. And I, let me, I'll go kind of two part here. So the first part is how much did you talk in the book about how he had this kind of malaise over, you know, do I give up golf? Right. Yeah. And I, and I think there were multiple things going on outside of just, you know, the equipment, but how much of that do you think was, I'm being loyal to my equipment and this just isn't working. What are your thoughts? Um, again, a lot I, going on, right? A lot yeah, going on. Sure. I wish we could go to the source here. Um, you know, Tracy, his wife firmly believes that it was a commitment to the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing who Payne was, I believe there's a lot of hubris here. Like the harder it got, the more committed he was to staying with it because he wanted to prove to himself and others that, uh, that equipment did not win the 89 PGA and the 91 U S open that he did. Uh, I think about what, um, oh boy, there's a champions tour many years ago, a uh, real character. And I uh, was at a tournament w- uh, interviewing him about something once. And we were talking about equipment and he said, you know, the difference between you and me, he said, the difference between you and me is I could take your equipment and beat you every time <laughs> you could take my equipment and never have a chance. And, uh, you know, that sort of stuck with me, like the truly gifted elite golfers. Um, and by that, I mean, anybody who's earned a place on the PGA tour ever, yeah. you know, like they can get it done with what, with a Coke bottle. And I think, you know, Payne sort of had that idea that, that it's not about what club I'm holding or what ball I'm hitting. I'm, I'm the one who executes. So I think there's a little bit of that going on too. Um, but, but emotionally in the nineties, when there was one year where he just barely cleared a hundred thousand dollars, I think. And, uh, thank goodness for Tracy Stewart, because there were a couple of times where he was pretty committed to doing something else. And his wife said, what else are you going to do? This is all you've ever done. He had a business degree from SMU, but had never been in the profession. He didn't have a skill to take beyond golf. And so Tracy Stewart was a rock. She was like figuratively the adult in the room in that relationship. And it's a good thing that he had her because I don't think 99 ever happens without Tracy Stewart. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, There's something that the slump does for him though. And I, and I'm, I, you know, when you think about this this transformative period of his life where he's not winning and then he comes out of it, you know, essentially in 1998, but I think where there were there were signs before that from a personality standpoint, but he goes through this this terrible slump. He has the equipment issue. Um, his friend Paul Azinger has a cancer diagnosis. Yes. And I kind of wonder, do we have 98 and 99 and and do we have uh, the pain steward that we know and and uh, perhaps even idolize today, if he doesn't go through this 
very tough period of his life. No, I, no, we don't. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, this is, there are many reasons for what we saw in 99, both on the golf course and, and off. Uh, you rightly mentioned um, the slump, which can humble a man. And many of the, the of his peers I spoke with for this book kind of marveled and sort of ruminated on that idea of, you know, what, what it would have been like after winning two majors in two years to basically vanish for seven. Um, and, and also, we should note that the tournament that he did win in the 90s, the, the, the Shell, the Houston Open, it was very much like Mike Reed in the PGA Championship. Uh, Scott Hoke surrendered a, an, what looked like an insurmountable lead on Sunday and ended up in a playoff with Payne, and, and Payne won the playoff through sheer momentum because Scott Hoke had none. So let's recognize that. So, yes, the, the, the humbling experience of the slump, the, uh, the necessary confrontation of your own mortality when you're fishing every other Sunday with a guy who's got cancer. And, you know, Paul told me that I think men are like this men in competitive sports. They, they're uncomfortable with vulnerability and perceived weakness and whatever else comes with having a, a terrible illness like cancer. And, a lot of Paul's friends just kind of drifted away a little bit after Paul got the diagnosis, but pain stuck with him. Would drive over from Orlando to Bradenton on weekends when he was home from the tournament trail and get in a boat with Paul. And they'd just go out and they'd go fishing and they'd have beer and they wouldn't talk like about death and mortality and legacy and what you leave behind. They were still guys. They were just guys. Yeah, right. But but I believe, and Paul believes this too, that that time spent, it caused pain to think about things that he had never thought about, including what if something like that happens to me? What have I left? And have I been the man I want to be remembered as? So I think that's a, an undeniable factor in the, the new Payne Stewart that we saw in 99. And of course, the, the, the well-told and often told story is faith. And that too is undeniable. I don't believe it's as strong as the, the story seemed to suggest back in 99 when he was wearing the bracelet. And he talked a lot about it, about his faith in, uh, in press conferences. It, it's a part of it, but it's, it's one of many parts and all of them are important. And plus, he was just growing up, Connor. He's 42 years old in 99. He's finally, like, maturing. He's reaching self-actualization. And you can see the end, right, of your career. Obviously not, unfortunately, sure. as fast as it came. But, yeah, yeah you can see. And back then, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like past your peak. That's yeah. not true now. But back then, you're past your peak. And, um, yeah, for sure, he was on the other side of the mountain. So – one of the things I adore about your book, by the way, this is kind of jumping off topic a little bit, uh, is how it weaves together. I know you talk about five parts, but I see three narratives. At least that's my takeaway. So <laughs> narrative one is, in, in my mind, uh, it's the central theme, right? The journey of the humbled champion seeking redemption. The narrative two, which I'm going to admit, I mean, I get a little emotional even talking about it because it takes me back, are the events of October 1999. And how you split that up within the story of what transgressed from the military standpoint uh, to 
you know, the, the reports of, of the plane crash that took his life. Yeah. Uh, because as I'm reading it, I have this, you know, I'm old enough uh, that I remember that happening. And I remember it just, I mean, it's literally giving me like flashbacks of the news coverage. On October 25th, 1999, there is a jet that is unresponsive. And then it seemed like two hours later, there is a professional athlete on the jet and it's a professional golfer. And then unfortunately, thereafter, we find out that Payne Stewart's demise, you know, his demise came on that very day in a cornfield. Remarkable. Um, how I, there's a, a narrative three that I'm going to go into, but I, I just want to, not that we're going to dive into it deep here, but I just thought that was really impactful uh, to bring those folks who lived through that experience and give them a little bit of a flashback that takes them back to a visual and, and uh, recorded memory that happened in time. I, I wanted, I wanted that day told from three different places um, primarily from on the ground in Houston at champions golf club, where the turn the tour championship was about to take place. Right. And that's where Payne was going when he left Orlando on October 25th, he was going to make a quick trip up to Dallas to look at some golf course property. He was going to have a, uh, be like a, a, a golf course designer, co-designer. Um, so, that was easy because all of the players are either in Houston or getting to Houston very soon. All of the tournament staff are there. Um, and also I wanted to tell it from the, the airplane, the Learjet 35 flight in 47 BA, um, through the cockpit transmissions. And also I wanted to tell it from the perspective of Aberdeen, South Dakota, where after almost four hours of flying on autopilot, at the upper reaches of cape flight capability, 50,000 feet, this plane was, was flying at yeah. almost to the stratosphere. So, um, the story, this whole book, uh, came about one night in November, 2017. It was a Saturday night. And I'm just like, my wife and I are at home with the kids and I'm scrolling through, uh, ephemera on the internet. And I somehow ended up finding the final report from the national transportation safety board on that flight. And as, as government reports are, it's incredibly detailed, but very clinical and cold. There's not a human story there. It's just an inventory of fact, but a lot of these facts had not been flushed out really in uh, the journalism that we know from the day Payne Stewart died. I mean, you know, it's like reporters do this. They go to the big catastrophe, the big crisis, the big tragedy. They're there for a couple of days. The magazine writers hang around for another two weeks and then we're off to the next thing. Right. And now Payne's, Payne's uh, death and life had been revisited at the 10, at the 10 year anniversary in, in 2009 but not at the level of detail that was of, of true storytelling detail that was that was in this report. So that's really where all of this began. So I had this rich trove of information about October 25th, 1999 and what happened aboard the plane and what the last words the pilot said were and what the 
United Airlines pilot and the, the pilot for Cubana Air saw and said over the radio as they were looking for, for signs of life inside this Learjet and what the military pilots, what they saw and what they said. Uh, and that had never been worked into the story of Payne Stewart's death in a public way. So, um, so that, gave, that gave me an opportunity to tell that story of that day in an entire section. It's like, you know, gosh, close to 20,000 words. Yeah. You know, what I take away from that, and, and this might be incredibly un, unfair, is that it, in a weird way for me, it kind of gave a voice to Payne Stewart about how that ended, how his life came to an end. Like mm-hmm. it's it, obviously you said it's it's almost a clinical perspective from the report standpoint, but never before had I ever really dove into all the different things, all the different moving parts that happened, some of which while he was still living and then some after. Yes. Well, let's look at it this way. <clears throat> this was Payne Stewart's final statement. This was his exclamation point. Now, I want to I do not want to take credit for this as an original thought because it was Chuck Cook, his instructor, who first mentioned this idea in kind of an abstract way, but it's something I have not been able to forget. Here is a man who lived his entire life seeking attention, wanting notice, and on the last day of his life, the entire world was watching him. Like that is that is a statement right there. Yeah. Now, I know that it would be silly to say literally he was making this statement, but that is the connection that I make to this. Sure. Is that he's a man who mm-hmm. his entire life sought the attention and the respect and the regard of people around him. And on October 25th, 1999, he had it from everybody. I like that. I, I do too. Yeah, I like that. To it isn't isn't there? I mean, it's almost uh, it's almost uh, literary. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the I don't know the this is the encapsulated story. That's why I think I like about your book as much as anything is it takes all those moments of life and basically how it ended and and kind of you have two bookends finally. Agreed. Yeah. And and I I. Uh, I just want to I just want to talk this through because it's also something I haven't thought about um, a great deal. the The book starts with Payne finishing round one at the ninety eight U.S. Open. He's walking from the green to the post round interview. The first time that he's been asked to do a post round interview because of his success in a very long time. Yeah. So in that way, it's almost a welcome experience, unlike in the past when he didn't really like to talk to the press. Now he was eager to. It felt good because he just shot 66 at the Olympic Club better than anybody. That, that's the first moment in the book. The, the, the book ends with 29 players at the Tour Championship, which is supposed to have a field of 30, but Payne Stewart never made it. With 29 players cleaning out their locker – walking through the parking lot at Champions Golf Club, and they're walking past the spot with the sign that says reserved for Payne Stewart, which had been empty all week, 
but on Sunday evening when everybody's leaving, it had blossomed into this spontaneous tribute to to Payne Stewart flowers and signs and someone left a poem. Uh, it was this uh, memorial. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that at the beginning of the book, Payne entered, he walks on stage, so to speak, <laughs> and he's walking away from the golf course after success. And at the end, all of his friends are leaving the golf course Yeah, after his demise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's beautifully written. Um, I'll jump into the the third narrative, um, and and I call this the new beginning. Um, mm. This moment in time, uh, specifically nineteen ninety nine, that kind of era, or that start of the new era, I should say, was affected like no other. It's basically everything we know of in the game today. All the things we love from our beloved champions like Tiger and Phil, they're coming onto the stage. And we're entering this new era of technology, the wound ball, the large titanium drivers, graphite shafts, the game has changed. Would you mind talking about how pivotal this time is and how it changed the game and where pain fit into that? So in 1999, very few players carried a hybrid. In 1999, no one played the Pro V1 because that wasn't released until 2000. And in 1999, fitness and diet and exercise weren't a staple of every player's daily routine as they are now. And in 1999, no one had TrackMan, no one had rangefinders, no one knew spin rates, no one knew launch angles. We did not have advanced stats as we do in golf today. And it's not a bright line, Connor, but, uh, but, it's, but the shift has begun in 99, and that's clearly represented by the emergence of Tiger Woods. So Tiger won the 97 Masters. He's, he's here. He's arrived. And then he goes into a bit of the wilderness with this first swing change. Right. And, and it comes out with a flourish in 99. And he, sw- he runs the table on the back half of the season. And he won the PGA Championship that year. He won at Firestone. He won the, ver- the WGC in Spain. Um, the match has been lit. And the game has, is changing forever right before our eyes. Because here comes this athlete, Tiger Woods. And behind him are David Duvall and, La- and Phil Mickelson and Vijay Singh and guys who just bomb it. It's the it's the first whisper of bomb and gouge golf. It's it's the the shift from accuracy as a premium to distance as a premium. And where pain fit into this was he was a relic. He I'm sure he wanted to get longer, but the way that he had learned to play golf and with the equipment that he had learned to play golf with, he was a shaper of the golf ball. He was an artist. Right? He was an artist, yeah. 100%. Um, and this new style didn't suit him. It didn't suit his sensibilities. It wasn't who he was. And he didn't want to be that person either. I believe, you know, he, he, he saw game, he saw golf as, a, as an expression of guile and of savviness and of um, artistry. 
And that's that's not what we were seeing out of. We were, I suppose we're seeing it in a different way from Tiger Woods, but it was just more primal and yeah. more violent. And now, yes, when we see Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson at the PGA Championship at Bethpage this year, we are seeing what started in the last half of '99. And so, and so to me, and I don't mean this in a literal sense, but the the style of play that Payne Stewart represented, along with his peers that that season. And I define that generation as players born before 1960. Right. So you have Payne, you have Marco Mira, who, who had won the Masters in the British Open the year before. Uh, you have Tom Lehman. You have Hal Sutton. All of these guys, by the time they arrive at the Ryder Cup in September of 99, they have won all the majors they're ever going to win. They're basically – this is their last moment of relevance. Right. And, and they made it relevant, didn't they? But that's that's what that's what I see as this shift, this generational shift. It's almost like these guys are leaving the stage and here come the next generation and they play a different way with a different swagger and a different swing speed and a different carry distance. And that's what we see today. It's almost like a postmodern, post postmodern style of golf. Yeah. Well, I see it as in 1999 paints, you know, passes away and we essentially we end an era that essentially started in 1900 right uh so it was the advent of the haskell ball or the uh, let's just call it the popularity of the haskell ball which was the first wild ball and so he passes away in october and the era of the multi-combination ball uh you know large driver heads uh hybrids if you will all those things take shape and the game is just, it's, ne- it's never been the same. It'll never be the same. Golf got easier yeah. with all that. And, and so, you know, some people might quibble with that premise that Payne was the last great, Payne and his generation, they were the last great stylists, the, the field players, the shot makers. Well, let's look at it this way. Those guys learned to make shots. They learned to style a golf of golf shot with steel shafts and tiny forged, unforgiving, intolerant club heads and tiny persimmon headed drivers and unpredictable, unreliable prone to getting sliced golf balls. That's right. Cut open. Yeah. (laughs) Get a big old smiley face on your, like none of the, none of the kids today had any smiley faces. You can't even do that if you try. Um, But so so when we look at, at golf today, we we do see shot makers. Rory shot Rory McIlroy is a shot maker. Tiger Woods shot maker. All of those guys are shot. Bubba shot maker. But they did not have to learn to make shots with with equipment that seemed almost purposefully built to prohibit the ability to make shots. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> we have these implements that are not made for golf. Now go out, go out and win the U.S. Open. That's that's it. That's I love it. that. I was just trying to make a larger point here. That, no, I get that. that. This is the passing of a generation who knew how to do stuff that the next generation didn't have to learn to do. Yeah, it just yeah, it became easier, specifically at the highest level. I mean, yes. if you can hit the sweet spot, it didn't guarantee a great score with a wound ball just because you could hit the sweet spot. You hit the sweet spot with a multi-cover ball. 
that corrects with equipment that is larger face, more tolerance um, for mistakes, and you can still hit the fairway. You miss it off the toe with a, heck, 1940 iron, you break your hand, <laughs> the ball goes yeah. 50 yards right and 40 yards short, right? And I, and I love that, that players are talking about this publicly now. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole discussion about bifurcation and distance and architecture, it all has to do with this thing that was evolving in, in 99. It wasn't a, like a right angle turn. It was soft and it was gradual, but I do see 99. If you look at the all of the years, 99 represents uh, the shift. Yeah, it's the end. It's the end of that era. Anyway, the, end the of start of a new. Another, and, and I'm not arguing that one thing is better than the other. I mean, we got Tiger Woods. Can't be that bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's jump into 99. So, uh, you know, because we're already there. So... I think you alluded to this already, but many people forget that Payne's redemptive story of winning the 1999 U.S. Open at Pinehurst came firmly within the era of Tiger Woods. So Tiger Woods, just two years prior, beats the field at the Masters by 12 strokes. Um, Then he goes under the the swing change. But the new era had begun. So my question to you is, and this is coming off of 98, but you have all these young guns. You have Duvall and you have Mickelson and you have Ernie Els out there, just some amazing players. Payne Stewart comes off an amazing showing at the previous year's U.S. Open. Was he considered one of the favorites going into the U.S. Open at Pinehurst? Probably he was in the conversation of the 20 players who could win, but probably not the five. He had won at Pebble Beach previous that previous winter, uh, late spring, early spring. But he hadn't won it. It wasn't a, a four-round tournament. It got rained out. Sunday got rained out. So he won a 54-hole tournament. Um, that didn't feel right to him. It didn't feel complete. It didn't feel wholly legitimate. And he wanted to prove to himself and maybe to other people, but mainly to himself that he could win a 72 hole tournament again. He was not in great form, not in great form coming into the 99 U S open. He had, uh, I don't have my, I don't have the, the results in front of me. He had, he had nipped at the, at the lead a few times more so than he had in the nineties, but he missed the cut in Memphis the the um, the week before the U.S. Open, which was actually a gift and a blessing because that meant he and Chuck Cook, his teacher, and Mike Hicks, his caddy, could go to Pinehurst, North Carolina, two days before they had planned to get there. And so they went on Saturday, left Memphis, went to North Carolina. Chuck Cook had uh, been a teacher at the Golf Digest schools at, at Pinehurst. He knew the number two course very well, and he knew how to conquer it, which not a lot of people did. Um, yeah, what was that plan? What was the plan they put in place? Well, they spent most of their practice time early in the week around the greens. Uh, so Pinehurst greens are raised, they're crowned, they're pushed up. They're murderous. They're murderous, aren't they? In a, in a, in a brilliant way. Yes. Way. In a brilliant way. Um, Donald Ross's crown jewel right there with Seminole. Um, so if you miss a green at, at, at Piner's number two, your ball will will roll down the slope of the first of the green. So you know, consider an, an over an up uh, uh, an inverted saucer, and a green might be twelve thousand square feet at Pinehurst. I'm just guessing, but let's say only seven thousand of that is usable, pinnable green. 
because the sides slope off. And then, so once your ball starts rolling down the slope of the green, then it hits the slope of the ground that's push, that pushes the green up. And we all know that there's no rough at Pinehurst. It's all shaved. So a shot that typically would miss the green by five yards at Pinehurst will miss the green by 15 or 20. Thanks, for, that, ri- thanks for reminding me of my last round there. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, four, I, I When I played Pinehurst in October for, for the book reporting trip, I, I hit 16, the par five and two. Yeah. And this is where Pine, uh, where Payne began his, his run on Sunday at the U S open. Anyway, uh, I had a 20 footer for Eagle. I tapped in for a seven. Oh, <laughs> it's easy to do. It's but easy to is, do. No, it is. This isn't about me. So, um, <laughs> so on that, on the, those early practice sessions, he and Chuck and Mike, Mike Hicks went out with, uh, seven clubs, and uh, they just worked around the greens. They did not hit many full shots. They didn't work on the driver. They went out and figured out how to get out of trouble and save bogey at worst on on Pinehurst number two. And uh, Chuck had a, has a yardage book. And in that yardage book, he marked in a certain color of ink with a big, obvious X those places where under no circumstance should Pine, should Payne miss the green. And they would off, they would leave one or two options in a different color ink around the greens in the yardage book of where he could miss the green and still have a hope of saving our bogey. And they spent so much time working on these shots from two irons to eight irons to all of the different wedges and even putter they spent so much time doing that and Payne was so prepared for any outcome that not until Sunday did Payne Stewart hit one of those spots around the green with the big X. Wow. It's exquisite. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't it? And he got up and down for, he made it like a 10 footer for bogey. So he did save the bogey when he did. Yeah, I think back at that tournament, and I think, you know, much like a lot of his wins and his losses in majors, Payne always made things interesting, you know, didn't he? It was never like, he's not blowing out the field, but this, like so many before, went right down to the wire, and he's head and head, neck and neck with Phil Mickelson. So I guess, looking back at it, for you, for everybody else, why does that moment shine so brightly in golf's history? You know, that triumphant pose of him throwing his fist in his air. Why the, I, I don't even know how you bend your, your leg that way. I, I've never, I, I can't pull it off. To him holding Mickelson's face and giving him encouragement. Why do you think that's endured so well over time? That's an indelible moment that is always going to be there for us. Why? It had to do with stakes. It had to do with um, wisdom beating um, hubris. So, so let's start at 16. Let's remember that. So Payne Stewart one putted the last three grains. He made about, let me think, let me do the quick calculation here, about 50 feet of putts in three, in in three strokes on, he made the long one for par on 16 Mickelson bogeys. They both, um, hit their tee shots on the par three seventeen, it, you know, like 
wonderful lasered tee shots to the par three. And by this time, the momentum is building. It's going to be one of them to win. And Pinehurst, the, the U.S. Open had nothing had been, nothing big had been to Pinehurst in many years. And the whole town came out and it was a like a misty sort of Scottish kind of day. And it had this otherworldly feel to it. And now we have these two players from two different generations. You know, will, will, the, will the young challenger, Phil Mickelson, who was destined for greatness, would he finally break out and win his first major? Or would the old man who make, making his last stand, would he prevail? It was, the, it was that question and just the shot making that both of those players produced. Nobody backed into this championship. Payne Stewart won it. And here's the wisdom part. So Payne Stewart once called the recovery wedge shot from the rough the most boring shot in golf. <laughs> That's when he was young and, and silly. So on 18, <clears throat> he has a uh, one-shot lead at this point over Mickelson because he birdies the par 317th and Phil misses his birdie putt. So, so Stewart has made up two strokes on the last two holes with two one-putts. He blocks his drive ever slightly to the right, and his ball sort of trundles into the rough. And now he's got a decision. Now, the yardage isn't a problem, but the lie is the problem, and so are the stakes. A previous, a younger and earlier Payne Stewart would have just been like, give me the six iron. I'm going to hit it to a foot. That's, you know, we're going we're gonna to win this thing with a flourish. We're going to go down in history. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a highlight. But that was not who Payne Stewart was in 99 because he was older and he was wiser and he had more perspective. He was a different guy. So he famously took the recovery shot, the most boring shot in golf, laid up to a good like 88 yards, hit the wedge to 15 feet and made the putt. So he willed that victory in a, in a more mature, cautious way. Let's, let's remember how he lost famously, I think it was the 85 Byron Nelson. He, all he needed to do was bogey the 18th hole to beat Bob Eastwood so why not take a two iron or a three wood and hit it short of the lake? Well, Payne, Payne, that's not what Payne did. He took driver and hit it into the water. And he ended up making double going to a playoff with Bob Eastwood and losing to the great Bob Eastwood in a playoff. There were echoes of that as Payne standing over his ball on the 18th at Pinehurst on the 72nd hole deciding what to do. And he decided to make the percentage play. And I think that's also why we remember that U.S. Open so well is because it was yet another expression, another demonstration that this was a different Payne Stewart. I love that. I love that. So let's jump forward again. So let's, we're going to jump to 1999, the battle for Brookline. Mm-hmm. So even before the tournament, I, and I love this. It's, it kind of goes back to the yin and yang and you know, you're still pain, pain being pain, if you will. Or pain being a pain, depending on how some people saw it. But, you know, in the days leading up to the, the 1999 Ryder Cup, he said regarding the strength of the U.S. team over Team Europe, that Team Europe should be caddying for the U.S. team, not playing against them. Mm. In some ways, or perhaps many ways, that's one of the many comments that kind of stoked the fires for maybe even Ryder Cups to come. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, even a reformed pain... 
uh, obviously that's you know more in um, in gust gusto than anything, but I I just find that like we've got this this new improved pain, but he still can't help himself just to needle somebody because he you know he was a prankster even reformed right. Oh yeah yeah yeah, and right up until the week before his death, he was still getting in his own way. Yeah, and so. Uh, and that's a, another thing that I like about his life story is that he was on, he was on the right path. He was moving in the right direction, but he wasn't there. Yeah. And, and it's tragic and it's unfair that we didn't get to see him arrive because he might've gotten there, but then October 25th happened. So back to your question. Um, so look, golf isn't rugby and golf's not football and golf's not the NBA. And there's just, I don't know, there's a code. Uh, and I think of, again, Bobby Jones, like I can't see Bobby Jones trash talking, <laughs> you know, Francis Womet, uh, <laughs> or Walter Travis or something like that. Um, and I think that's what a lot, a lot of what appeals to, to people about golf that makes it different from other sports. It has a code of conduct. Um, and pain violated that like all the time. And yeah. we see violations of that now. We see it with Patrick Reed or uh, just a number of people now. Um, and, and so, yeah, like he, uh, he, he continued to say things that would get himself embroiled in a little controversy. Um, and it happened at the Ryder Cup, too. Yeah. So during the Ryder Cup, the U.S. is getting routed on Saturday. Ben Crenshaw gets up in front of TV, makes a pretty short statement. And in the end of it, he says, I've got a good feeling about this. Oh. It's the famous press conference. The fate. The fate Sunday swings in Americans' favor. I was, I was hoping maybe you could dive into Payne's story of that Ryder Cup, specifically on Sunday, and how he handled himself after that opening salvo. Yeah. Payne, you know, Payne wasn't a factor in the Ryder Cup. He played pretty badly. He didn't win a point. Um and in fact, Crenshaw benched him on Saturday. Uh, he was supposed to go out in the afternoon to play um, with someone else, and uh, pay, uh, Crenshaw subbed uh, Justin Leonard for him. So, um, come Sunday, I don't know. I don't know what what truly won the Ryder Cup for the Americans, but but the captain of the European team, Mark James, had had a, had a big hand in that because James backloaded. His his lineup on Sunday and put his stars last, his best players last. Yeah, Crenshaw put all of his best players on top. You know, Tom Lehman, Hal Sutton, um, the the, uh, the 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 best American players played first, and that tells you something about Payne Stewart's state of play. He was the last match on the golf course. Mm-hmm. He and Colin Montgomery were were nip and tuck the whole way. Um. It was loud. It was raucous. It was boisterous. It was profane. Um, spectators were saying terrible things to Colin Montgomery and his family. Someone threw a beer on his wife. Yeah. Um, or his father. I can't remember which. They called him. They called him terrible names. Names that that have no place on a golf course. And call me old fashioned. But um, so much so that Payne Stewart at one point identified the, a perpetrator and alerted a, uh, a rules official and had the guy kicked off the grounds. I'm not sure a, a 29 year old Payne Stewart or a 32 year old Payne Stewart would have done that. Right. Exactly. In a, especially in a Ryder cup in a Ryder cup. Yeah. Uh, singles match. So, uh, Colin Montgomery and 
Payne Stewart are standing in the fairway of the 17th hole, or not the fairway, one, one of them's in the rough. Um, they're about 150 yards from the green when Justin Leonard rolls in the putt. Um, they don't yet know because they're so far removed. They don't yet know exactly what this means, but the celebration tells them that things have swung clearly into the Americans' favor. Um, so Leonard and Olaf Abel finish their match. The Ryder Cup is secured. And Payne Stewart and Colin Montgomery are the last two men on the golf course. They are the last singles match. It means nothing. It is inconsequential. Colin Montgomery can hole out his tee shot on the long par four, and he's still the Europeans lose. Right. And they're playing it out as players do in the Ryder Cup because individual Ryder Cup records matter. Yeah. And, um, and certainly to someone like Payne Stewart, who's, you know, a vain man still. And, um, they get to the green Payne's in the bunker, Collins in the, in the, on the fringe Payne splashes out. He's got 20 feet or so Collins got Collins away. And, um, it's likely at this point, I think that statistically Colin Montgomery is going to win this match regardless, but in an amazing gesture of, of sportsmanship of, of recognition of the moment of, as a reference to 1989, of reading the room, Payne Stewart walks over to Colin Montgomery and says, I think we've had enough for today, don't you? And Colin, who is stunned that he has just been conceded this singles match, yeah. pauses, he gathers himself, he practically chokes on tears, and he says, yeah, I, I guess we have. And they shake hands. And that is the last time we see Payne Stewart on television. And it's in that moment. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just taking that in. I remember that. So finally it's, it's a, it was a, it's a powerful moment. It's kind of like a lasting moment, right? That just sticks in. Right. You're right. It's but it's very quiet. Yeah. And, 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 uh, in terms of what was happening that day, it was very inconsequential. Basically Payne saying my individual Ryder cup, record is not worth what Colin Montgomery had to endure today. And he shouldn't have to finish out this hole. He deserves to win this hole because of what he's gone through. So Connor, this um, moment is frozen in time at the standalone clubhouse at the country club in Brookline. The men's locker room is its own building. And we all remember Ben Crenshaw and the rest of the players shaking champagne bottles from the balcony of this in 1999. Right. And there's a, a, a color photograph on, on a, a wall in this darkly paneled uh, locker room of Payne splashing out of the bunker, which was his last full shot mm-hmm. um, at the Ryder Cup. And it's a wonderful tableau because this photograph that this, this locker room is full of really amazing, gorgeous, important photographs from the years, the centuries, right, at the country club. But this one has its own place, and it's not crowded by other pictures, and it's got a light above it. And there's no caption. There's no, there's no language telling people what to think about this or why it's important because people know. And it's there, preserved in time forever. What a brilliant tribute. Isn't it? It's lovely. So as we wrap up here, after writing this book, 
you've, you've done all your research, you're, you're starting to put it on paper, obviously on a screen nowadays. Uh, but what's your takeaway? Like, what do you walk away from? Uh, you know, you've, you've, you walked in his shoes, if you will, for two years. Uh, you've waited in anticipation until today where your book's out, uh, hot off the presses, if you will, on the bookshelves. What's your takeaway? What maybe, how did you walk into this perceptions of Payne Stewart and how might it be different than how you feel today? That's, that's the perfect last question. If it is our last one. Yeah, I've got a viewer question I'll go to, but that's my last question. Yeah. <laughs> so here it is. <clears throat> so just humor me for a minute. Um, you are Payne Stewart. I am Payne Stewart. Everybody is Payne Stewart. We all have regrets. We all did things when we were younger that we wish we hadn't done. We all wish we could take stuff back, but we can't. It's not how it works. So what can we do? Well, we can either continue on a path of making mistakes and doing dumb things that we regret, or we can change. And we don't have to forget about our pasts, but we can get better. We can rise above it. And that's what, that's what Payne Stewart was doing. And that's why, that's why I related to his life. Like you might wonder how, how, how relatable is the life of this, you know, good looking, dashing, uh, colorful style, stylish, uh, good looking movie star, good looks. Absolutely. Millionaire who had this, this rare gift to play golf. How is that life relatable to mine? Well, it's relatable in the most fundamental way because like everybody, he was flawed and like most of us, and he, he kind of represents our best selves in my view. So, you know, when I look back at my life, I wish there were things, I wish I could take some things back, but I can't. So what can I do? I can get better. I can, I can improve. And that's what pain was doing. And that's why I became so, you know, deeply connected to his life, because if you look at it in a certain way, at a certain angle, it's my life too. And I think it's everybody's. Did you expect to find that story within? Nope. No, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I knew, I knew 99 and I had a, um, a passing knowledge of who he was before then, but that kind of deeper sort of universal idea or theme that just emerged uh, as I was working on the book. And, um, and that's when it became, that's when I began to believe that, I mean, you know, book sales and reviews and doing podcasts with people like you, all of this is, this is great. I, and, and I'm really grateful for this. Uh, but in the end, I, I wanted to, to do a story that people could see themselves through. And when I realized that that was going to happen, that's when that's when I reached a level of like contentment doing this project that I didn't expect. Yeah, it's so beautifully put together. And I, before I get to the the viewer question, I'll just say this, folks. Again, it's the last stand of Payne Stewart, the year golf changed forever. It's Kevin Robbins is the author and on our podcast today, and it's in stores today. Obviously, you can get it on Amazon, but uh, don't forget your local shops that sell them as well. Um, let's go into the uh, the viewer question I have. I, I know you saw it, but... Uh, it's a good one, yeah. Yeah, it is. So uh, this is from Tim Chermer. Shermer. I apologize, Tim. Tim Shermer. 
Payne famously had a couple near misses, 85 Byron Nelson, 86 U.S. Open, and Open, four total runner-up finishes in 1986. Could you talk about the impact those had on Payne and how they may have changed his, his approach? That I, I love this question, um, and, and Tim, thank you. Thank you for it. Um, he mentions the Byron Nelson, and after Payne loses the playoff to Bob Eastwood, the one where all he needed to do in, with, with, to win in regulation was make a bogey on a pretty harmless par four, but he hit a succession of bad shots informed by hubris and immaturity and inexperience. So anyway, um, the cameras are trained on him and he and his wife, Tracy, they're holding hands and they're walking from the golf course to presumably their car, I suppose. And they're walking through uh, this long grass and they're not speaking and they're both just staring straight ahead. And Payne is slightly ahead of Tracy, almost pulling her as if he can't wait to get out of there, which probably was happening. And the cameras are trained on it. And one of the broadcasters says something about a lonely walk. That is a lonely walk right there. Well, Payne had a number of lonely walks throughout his career. He had no lonely walks in 1999. Most of those lonely walks came when he was young and impetuous and uh, impatient and inexperienced. And some of them happened in the 90s when he was in the wilderness with the equipment. And um, as we said earlier, that whole experience of losing and losing without grace and then in the 90s, losing and being forgotten, almost non-existent and, and, and anonymous. I believe that informed who he was in 99 to, to a great extent. The, the, the humility and even the, um, the embarrassment of what he went through in periods of his career made him stronger when he was older and able to look back on those moments and learn from them. So I think what Tim brought up is a really, really important motivating force. Absolutely agree. Thank you, Tim, for the question. Folks, I'm going to wrap it up. I usually try to keep this at about an hour. We are well over that. And I think you'll agree that it had to go this long. Um, this was a story that um, is near and dear to, I think, a lot of us because we lived through this time. It's not like the stories we might tell of Bobby Jones and Harry Varden and you know the first Open Championships. This is one that most of us has lived through. And I think the takeaway for me is, folks, I, you know, I know we have some, I know this sounds odd, but we have some people that listen to the show that don't even play golf. This is a very human story. This is a story of of growth and redemption and heartache and loss. And it's just, it's human. And that's why more than anything, I'm just going to tell you, buy this book, uh, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, again, by Kevin Robbins. Look it up. Um, I think you enjoy all the different facets to this from the new era of equipment to a man struggling with who he is and how he's going to win through these uh, deep, uh, of valleys and, and high peaks, and then his uh, tragic loss way too soon. Uh, but thank you so much, Kevin, for being on the show. It means a lot to me. Love the book. I'm going to say it again. Sorry, folks. Thank you so much.
Oh, I truly enjoyed it. It was a great, uh, great talk. Thank you so much, Connor. All right. And folks, this is episode 20 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Thank you for listening.